That's what it looks like. Brothers and sisters in Christ, as we carry on with our study of the book of Ephesians today, we're going back to chapter 2 and uh, we're at the end of that chapter, verses 19 to 22. So please can you turn there now. I'm going to start reading at verse 11, however, as before, to keep up the, the thread of Paul's thoughts. Now you may well think, as we go along, in light of his earlier comments, that he's beating the point to death. Okay, I've got it now. Jews and Gentiles do not get on. And uh, that's all changed. They must do so. So what? Well, we'll find out what in due course. And I do hope that we all appreciate, for the sake of our seated parts, that there is only just so much text that one can take on on a Sunday. Uh, Paul is building a proposition in this section that has a, a great deal of importance for both our eternal lives and for what we do for the balance of our lives here on earth. So with those stakes in mind, we should perhaps forgive him for being careful about the bricks he uses and how he builds up his argument. So let's read from Ephesians 2 then, starting from verse 11. Therefore, remember that you, once Gentiles in the flesh, who are called uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision made in the flesh by hands, that at that time you were without Christ, being aliens from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers from the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. But now in Christ, you who once were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace, who has made both one and has broken down the middle wall of separation, having abolished in his flesh the enmity that is the law of commandments contained in ordinances, so as to create in himself one new man from the two, thus making peace, and that he might reconcile them both to God in one body through the cross, thereby putting to death the enmity. And he came and preached peace to you who are far off, and to those who were near. For through him we both have access by one Spirit to the Father. Now, therefore... You are no longer strangers and foreigners, but fellow citizens with the saints and members of God's household, having been built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Jesus Christ himself being the chief cornerstone, in whom the whole building, being fitted together, grows into a holy temple in the Lord, in whom you also are being built together for a dwelling place of God in the Spirit." Most of us feel comfortable in belonging somewhere. We may belong in a family. I'm a Tastard. In a church, I'm a member of Web C. In a city, Wanganui. To a nation, New Zealand. These things will often define us. They build up like bricks in a wall to be a source of pride and comfort to us. Consider the fantastic show of flags that we saw during the World Cup, Kiwis everywhere showing their pride and belief in our nation, the common bond that exists between us. Now, it turns out that I know personally quite a lot about nationality. You see, I was born in a place in June 1963 named Southern Rhodesia, which six months later became just 
Plain Rhodesia as a colony of the United Kingdom. Well, that lasted until November 1965 when the government, led by Ian Smith, issued a unilateral declaration of independence, making our country the Republic of Rhodesia. We then had a civil war resulting in the formation of Zimbabwe Rhodesia, which was an unrecognised state that existed from the 1st of June 1979 until the 12th of December 1979. Unfortunately, that failed to stop the war, and after negotiations with Britain, Zimbabwe Rhodesia briefly became the re-established British colony of Southern Rhodesia, which, according to British constitutional theory, had remained the proper government after UDI in 1965. Carrying on still. About three months later, that is in 1980, the re-established colony of Southern Rhodesia was finally granted independence as the Republic of Zimbabwe. Are you confused yet? I know I am, but the plot thickens. Because my father was born in Scotland, I also had a British passport, which became a bad thing because it meant that I had to renounce my Zimbabwean citizenship for reasons I won't bore you with. And now, I am a permanent resident of New Zealand as a British subject, hoping to become a citizen this year if you'll let me. (laughs) Colin won't let me. Now, can anyone tell me where I should hang my hat nationality-wise? From what can I take my comfort and pride, my source of identity? Paul says here, Now, therefore, you are no longer strangers and foreigners, but fellow citizens with the saints. If I, and any Christian for that matter, can claim the citizenship of heaven, why should where I was born, or where I live, make any difference to me at all? As we have just seen, governments and nations come and go, but the kingdom of heaven is unshakable and eternal, and my citizenship is unshakable and eternal as well. I cannot be forced to renounce it by the will of man as I was with my earthly citizenship. Praise God for that. My security is not enforced by any feeble earthly authority either. In the front of my British passport, it says this. Now listen now, because in a moment you'll see that I'm a very important person. It says... Her Britannic Majesty's Secretary of State requests and requires, in the name of Her Majesty, all those whom it may concern to allow the bearer to pass freely without let or hindrance, and to afford the bearer such assistance and protection as may be necessary. I must remember to read that out to the immigration officials the next time I travel. I'm sure they will be ever so impressed and helpful. Sir... The floor here is dirty. May I please lie down and let you walk over my humble body as you enter our country? Of course not. The Queen is a remarkable lady, for sure, but really, what authority does she actually have? What can she do? Because she is a human, just like me. However, my heavenly citizenship is secured by the full force and power of omnipotent God, creator and sustainer of the universe. I must be careful though not to be arrogant because as Paul has reminded us we are only citizens by grace unworthy recipients of a great and precious honour. No, 
our behavior should be that of ambassadors for the gospel of Jesus Christ. What is the nature of my citizenship? Is it of the kind that the king says, Dave Tastod, isn't he that dirty fellow down in the kitchens we set to cleaning out the grease trap with his tongue? Actually, the language Paul uses is a great more encouraging. He points out that we are fellow citizens with the saints. And, and who are they? Well, there's an enormous number of ideas from various commentaries, but the consensus of those would be that the saints are those who have obtained a righteous standing or position before God on the basis of Christ's work through faith. So, to put it simply, these are the men and women, boys and girls, who have a right relationship with God. And because of that, they can approach His throne without fear and they are certain of salvation and heaven. Now, that doesn't sound like kitchen duty to me. Quite the opposite, in fact. Now, we are citizens with those folk. We have the very same privileges We are all first-class citizens, and that is definitely something to praise and thank God for. Moreover, we are far more than just citizens. Citizens suggests that we belong to a faceless majority, but believers are far more intimate with God because they are members of the household of God. The Greek word Paul uses here for relative is oikios, And it speaks of belonging to the household, not merely just in the sense of living in that place, but being of close, intimate family. It's like this. You don't just have the passport, but you also have the front door key. And when you go inside, you are greeted by name, with love, and led to your seat at the feast. And who's at the head of the table? Well, it's God himself. Hello, Mike. Hello, Beth. Hello, Karen. How was your day? This is the wondrous gift of God to every believer. It doesn't matter who we are or where we have come from. Every child of God belongs in his home. Now here I want to say that I've been misleading you a bit because I've been speaking to you as individuals. And that's because I want every one of us here to intimately grasp that that feeling of belonging to the family of God. But we must clearly see that Ephesians, and this passage is talking about how we relate to God in this new type of group relationship. Remember that in recent verses, Paul has been carefully demonstrating how the Jewish and Gentile relationship to God and to each other has changed completely through the coming of Christ. One of the ways this happens is that we mingle, not as individuals, but corporately as the church, as we are here today. And we're going to see this new establishment pictured as a holy temple in which God dwells. This is language that the readers of the time when this was written would understand well because the Old Testament often speaks about God in this way. In the next three verses, Paul will show us the temple's foundation, its formation, and its function. So first the foundation, the household of God, having been built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets. Now firstly we should note the tense of the verse, having been built. It's past tense, isn't it? There was preparatory work done by the apostles and prophets 
which is now complete. The foundation is ready for the load to come. So this is part of God's plan, not some act of man's will. Next, why do all substantial buildings have foundations? Well, of course, the most obvious answer is that if they don't, they will fall down. However, foundations also have some other uses. They are the place where plans and intentions become reality. Eighteen months or so ago, we had an extension done to our house by Don Smith, Ken's brother. Yes, this is an advertising break. One might imagine that putting down a foundation is a matter of just digging a hole and pouring in some concrete, which it can be. But for a substantial construction, there's a lot more to it than that. So, first, using approximately 100 kilometers of string and 20,000 little wooden posts, Don painstakingly laid out exactly where the foundations would go. Because he knew that a true and square and accurate foundation is essential to the successful completion of the building. Any error made here will be multiplied later when we try to put the windows in or put the roof on and things are out of true. They won't fit. He was looking ahead both to the work done in building and the eventual purpose of the building. Then he made sure to use the right materials. Again looking ahead, since if the reinforcing steel or the concrete was weak, then no matter what you put on top of it, the structure would eventually fail under the pressure. We have read here that the foundation of the church was laid by the apostles and prophets. God too was planning ahead by specifically choosing and equipping special men to lay the foundation for his church. It's generally accepted by most of the commentaries I consulted that these prophets are of the New Testament variety, not the old, for a variety of reasons, and I won't go into these because they're quite complicated. But one commentary did contain these helpful definitions of apostles and prophets in the New Testament context. So, an apostle is an official delegate of Jesus Christ commissioned for the specific task of proclaiming authoritatively the message in oral and written form and establishing and building up churches. So that's an apostle. A prophet is one who is endowed with the Holy Spirit with the gift of prophecy for the purpose of edification, comfort and encouragement as well as for the purpose of understanding and communicating the mysteries and revelation of God to the church. But take a look at those definitions. I think it's clear to see the foundational work done by these people. Words like proclaiming, building up, edification, understanding and communicating make this obvious. But, while we know what they do, there is an elemental part that must be missing as they do God's work as imperfect humans. And that is supplied by the next part of the verse. Having been built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Jesus Christ himself being the chief cornerstone. Today we think of cornerstones as being largely decorative and symbolic. They're laid by a dignitary of some kind and they've got some kind of a message on them to reflect that fact. A sort of historical monument of passing interest, I suppose. However, for builders of Paul's day, they were a lot more important. 
When I was talking about Don laying out his string lines earlier, I didn't mention that he always measured back to a single place, a datum mark. Now, datums are used in many, many places, and while we don't think about them very much, they are actually an important part of our daily lives. Okay, so here's a definition and some examples of a datum. Simply, a datum is a reference point from which measurements are made. Okay, in, in surveying and geodesy, a datum is a set of reference points on the Earth's surface against which position measurements are made and to define a geographic coordinate system. Okay, we've all seen those little things on top of hills, so surveyors know where they are. Horizontal datums are used for describing a point on the Earth's surface in latitude or longitude or some other coordinate system. Vertical datums measure elevations or depths. Now, I did a course um, with the Coast Guard a while back for, for boating and uh, we did a lot of stuff on charts and there's a thing called mean high water springs. So if you look on your chart and you see a rock that's marked to be a wash at a certain point, well, how do you know it's going to be a wash when you get there? Because the tide goes up and down, doesn't it? Okay, so there's this data, mean high water springs, and there's a, a chart that allows you to work out how much water there will be on that rock when you get to it. Data mark. In engineering and drafting, a datum is a reference point, surface or axis on an object against which measurements can be made. And on the screen, you can see a picture of an engineering drawing. That circle in the middle is the datum mark. So starting from there, you can figure out exactly how big that thing is. Now, if Don hadn't used the datum mark, but had just relied on measuring as he went along from one point to the next, his layout would soon have been way out. Okay? I really like that phrase. Because each little error would just build on the next one and get bigger and bigger. But if he related everything to his data mark, this string of errors is eliminated. In ancient buildings, the cornerstone was often the first laid. It wasn't above ground for decoration, but in the foundation. It was very carefully placed and shaped to be square and true, so that it could serve as the datum we have been talking about. I was interested to discover that the Romans often used the best material they could get in the foundation, not in the walls, because they knew the importance of a sound base. Doesn't this seem like a perfect place for Jesus and the church, perfect in makeup, never bent or crooked, always straight or true? I'm going to stretch things a little bit here because we don't know this for sure from the text, but I think it's a very appealing idea. In some cases, the function of the cornerstone was to join walls together. And bearing in mind what we've been reading about walls of division and drawing the Jewish and Gentile lines together, doesn't this also seem appropriate? In fact, I found these pictures showing how some cornerstones are not actually carved just as straight blocks, but they have a corner in them to tie the two walls together. And you can... You can see that nicely in these pictures. And I really find this a helpful image of Jesus' work in bringing all humans together, no matter where they have come from. The construction of this temple that we know today as the church would never be possible without Jesus. It would never have reached God's standards of perfect holiness. It would never be straight and true. And because its base would have been weak, 
it would never have stood the test of time that it has. Now we have a strong and true foundation, we can go on to talk about the formation of the temple. A foundation on its own isn't much use because the sun and the rain beat down on it and the wind will have its way with your furniture, which might be a bit close to home, some of us, recent history. To provide a proper dwelling, we must have a building with walls and a roof. And we read in our text, in whom the whole building, being fitted together, grows into a holy temple in the Lord. You know, this is such a rich passage. We have already spoken of Christ's importance in the foundation. But from this text where we read, in whom the whole building, it is clear that he is critical to everything. There is no part of the temple that is not suffused with him. Now, suffused, it's a great word. It means spread over and poured through. Christ is spread over and poured through everything. And the Greek word that we read that says whole means just that. It means all, all manner of, all means, always, any, thoroughly, whatsoever, whole, whosoever, very clear that there is absolutely not one tiny piece that's missing Christ. Remember that while we are using this picture of a building, the reality is that it's made made from people. It's made from you and I. So this work of Christ is being acted out and through us. This means that we cannot be detached observers, but we must be engaged participants. There are three important lessons from this picture. Firstly, we must recognize that as cornerstone, Jesus is the start of the temple. Its construction began with his birth. He began it, he owns it, he sustains and shapes it. It's no human's work. It isn't any self-initiative that causes the growth spoken of, but the gracious action of God who fits individual believers with each other and the foundation and the cornerstone. We must never try to build the temple in our own strength or image. Secondly, we each have a very specific purpose. The text demonstrates this since it says that we are being fitted together. Okay, We are being fitted together. It's ongoing. In an ongoing work we are being perfected and formed for our part in the whole. Now, I have to pause here because we've got a very long Greek word like supercalifragilisticexpialidocious. Okay? The Greek word used for, for being fitted together is sunamolagio. I think I got that more or less right. Okay? And it means to render close jointed together. That is, organize compactly. Remember that in those days of building, there was no mortar to make it easy to fit blocks together that had a bit of a, an uneven surface. Instead, each one had to be painstakingly fitted by hand. It had to be smoothed out and offered up to the other bricks to make sure that it would fit perfectly. This is not a process that can be conducted in the absence of Christ. He is in it, he must motivate it, he must lead it, or it will be chaotic and futile, no matter how well-meaning our efforts to shape ourselves. In practice, this fitting process is what we call sanctification. We are becoming more and more like Jesus every day. And we'll speak a bit more about this in a moment. We can see, as I said earlier, from the word being, that it's an ongoing thing. 
not something that is finished. Lastly, this fitting process has a goal. We want a set of walls, a unity with a purpose as a place for God to live in. Not one of us can provide this on our own. It is a corporate work. And it's why, inasmuch as we have the spiritual picture of a temple, we also have a flesh and blood church here on earth that believers must be part of. To remove ourselves from the church pretty much means to remove ourselves from the shaping process. This will not be good for the work of sanctification or for the work of the church. So in order to be fully engaged, we must do more than just attend a church. We must actively participate in its life. Now we have all met folk who say that they are Christians, but they do not need to attend a church. I'm sorry, but they are wrong. This brings us neatly to the matter of function. We read the reason for construction in verse 22. In whom you also are being built together for a dwelling place of God in the Spirit. The purpose of this activity is to provide a place for God to dwell among his people through the Holy Spirit. It makes real the reconciliation of God and humans. Through Christ we are no longer alienated from God but living closely with him as members of a family do. We're living closely with God as members of a family do. What an amazing gift we have received. There is a further part of this function that is that's suggested to me by a slightly different understanding of the text. Again, this is really my opinion. It's not doctrine, but I think it's worth considering. A dwelling place is where God lives. So we might reasonably say that the temple spoken of is a place where he lives. Not just in the sense of being there, but being alive and visible and vital and found in that place. Do you see what I'm getting at? The church is a place where unbelievers ought to find God alive. Where they ought to find him. Where they ought to see him. Where the rightness and necessity of a relationship with him should be visible and demonstrated to all. Now remember that the church we're talking about isn't just a building with a steeple and a bell, but it is the sum of a body of believers, people who live daily in the world. The world ought to be able to see God alive in us through what we say and what we do. The hard question is, do they? And if they do not, what are we going to do about it? I have a few more quick questions before we end. However, although they are quick, this doesn't mean that they should not be searching. I encourage you, please, take your sermon notes and have a look at these questions in the week to come. Decide how you would answer them and consequently what you will do. So, firstly, how do you treat your fellow temple bricks. I don't just mean the people in this building, although they are certainly part of that question, but I mean the body of believers everywhere. It is so regrettable that the church has been divided by doctrine. And we should never allow this to become a matter of pride and isolation for ourselves. For sure there are matters that we cannot and must not negotiate over, but there is so much that we do hold in common with other believers. 
and to treat them with respect will honor God. It may well teach us new things and we may be surprised who we find out that God is holding us up against in a shaping process. Secondly, are we participating in sanctification or are we resisting? Are we fighting God? Do we want to fit in the space that God has intended for us? Practically, this means are we making time to pray? Are we studying God's word in a structured and diligent way? Do we actively look for opportunities for service? Remember, as parts of the temple, we are holy positionally through union with Jesus. So it follows that we should be holy practically out of love for him. We have work to do. At the beginning of the sermon, I had quite a lot to say about nationality and how it gives us a peg to hang our hat on. In light of what we have learned today about our heavenly citizenship and the body of people around us that we are most intimately connected to through Christ, I want to ask, finally, who comes first in your life? Your country or your king, your town or the temple? Let us pray. Father, thank you for bringing us into your family. Father, I pray that we would be productive members of your family, that we would, we would contribute to the work of your family. Thank you, Lord, for the work that you do in shaping us. I pray that your Holy Spirit will work on our hearts and minds to make us open to see what it is that you're trying to teach us and how you're trying to shape us. Father, as we leave this building now, I pray that we wouldn't leave your words behind, but they would stay alive in our hearts as we go into this week. They would challenge us and make us better witnesses for you would show your glory, that would show you alive, that would show the church alive and bring new people to the knowledge of Jesus as Saviour. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Alright, we have um, one final song which um, appropriately is based on this very text. So, the church's one foundation is Jesus Christ, her Lord. Please stand. The church is one foundation.
Lord.